You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Once upon a time, there was a mother pig who had three little pigs and not enough food to feed them. And so when they were old enough, she sent them out into the world to seek their fortunes. The first pig was very lazy, constructed their house out of straw. Second pig was a little less lazy, but also a little bit lazy at least, and built their house out of sticks, put in a little more work, but not much more, and so those two pigs then played the rest of the day. The third pig worked very hard, gathered the finest materials, and completed a very fine house made of brick. Fine fireplace and a chimney kind of capstone to this wonderful house. And one day a wolf was walking by, and the wolf smelled the delicious pig in the straw house and thought that would make a mighty fine meal. And so the pig or the wolf knocked on the door and said, Little pig, little pig, what? Let me in. And the pig said, Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. Well, then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. And so the pig, well, Let me think. How's the story go? Then the wolf huffed and puffed. That's the part. The wolf huffed and puffed and blew the house down. And as the wolf lunged to get the pig, the pig ran off and escaped to the house made of sticks with his brother. The wolf chased down this pig and smelled the two pigs inside, and he was hungrier than ever. And he knocked on the door and said, little pig, little pig, let me in. Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. Well, then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. So he huffed and he puffed and he blew the house down. As he went to lunge at the two pigs, they miraculously escaped again and fled to the house of their third brother, or their second brother, the third pig, in the house made of bricks. The wolf came and knocked on the door, said, little pigs, little pigs, let me in. And the pigs said, not by the hair of our chinny chin chin. And I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. And he huffed and he puffed. And he blew, and he huffed, and he puffed, and he blew, and he could not budge the house. Filled with rage, the wolf climbed up on the roof and went down that fine chimney. And the pigs had built a fire with a cauldron full of boiling water. And as the wolf fell down into the boiling water, they put the lid on it, and they ate wolf for dinner. It ends kind of morbid. (laughs) But that story is over 130 years old and teaches us some really interesting truths about life. And I think really is a good introduction and a good framework to think through our text today in Philippians chapter 1. What that story tells us and illustrates for children and really illustrates for anyone is that what you build with matters. And how you build matters, right? It's true in life. It's true in fairy tales. It also tells us, that story teaches us, that adversity and suffering and difficulty reveal the quality of a person or a thing or a house. What you build with matters, and what you build upon matters. I think there's also a third thing that sometimes gets overlooked in the story, but you think of the graciousness of that third pig. He put in the work, and when his brothers, their life, their house failed, and they were under threat, he was willing to open his home to the safety and what had been built by him that protected them. Jesus says something very interesting in Matthew chapter 7 that really is very similar to this. He says, Everyone who hears these words of mine 
and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. You could almost add in, and the wolves came, right? And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was that fall. Which is a similar story. This is a truth. This is a truth about life. This is a truth about spiritual realities as well as physical realities. What you build with matters. Paul also says this same thing in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17. He says, let each one take care of how he builds upon it, meaning the foundation of the gospel. For, one can, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds his life on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on this foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So if you turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, we just got four verses to look at today. And in the context of Philippians, Paul is writing to a church that he planted, a very kind of a remarkable church. I think Tanner covered this a couple of weeks ago. Very, a very remarkable church in a very pagan city, a very um, polytheist, a very um, resistant to the gospel kind of place. And Paul starts with a relatively upper class woman named Lydia who has a house that can house all of these missionaries. And then a demon-possessed girl that's a slave and then a Roman jailer, and that's the church planting team. Not, not what you would expect, not who you would pick. And yet, God brings the most unlikely people together who should never get along, but because their lives have been changed by Jesus, somehow they do fit together because the most important thing they have in common, which is Christ himself. And what happens is Paul ends up getting run off, but that church, somehow that unbelievably weird church with weird people put together, becomes, I would say, probably the healthiest church in the whole New Testament. Maybe one of the most fruitful in all of the New Testament. So Paul ends up going on to continue his ministry and leaves this little church that by no human standards should it work at all. And yet it does, by the grace of God. Paul ends up getting imprisoned and wants to write a letter back to this church to just thank them for how grateful he is for the Spirit of God's work in them And their partnership with him in the gospel. They have been so generous. Not just with their money, but with people. You'll learn about that a little bit later, that they send Epaphroditus to go and encourage him. And Epaphroditus almost dies. And so Paul wants to give them a report, but then also just talk about what this gospel partnership is all about. That you have a gospel partnership among you that is so remarkable and gives such great testimony to the gospel. But you also have a gospel partnership with me. And I just want to continue to pour fuel on the flame that God has lit among you. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. I want to inform you on what's going on. That's really the context of what is going on. And you saw last week that after a report about his situation earlier in chapter 1, 
you also get his own perspective on his situation. That being in prison actually hasn't hindered the gospel one bit. You would think it would. You'd think imprisonment, unjust imprisonment, for what he's preaching would be a bad thing, but it's just turning out that all the Roman guards are getting converted. And Christianity is spreading maybe even faster than if Paul was going by himself. And so his own gospel perspective that sometimes what looks, what, what, what people meant for evil, God means for good. And the gospel is beginning to spread all over the place. And he wants them to also take that same mindset that he has. The same mindset that Christ has that you're going to look at next week. And he wants to just encourage them. So that brings us to verse 27. So coming out of that. Paul's update, his perspective on it, to live as Christ, to die as gain, it's win-win for the Christian, right? Whether life is easy and ministry is easy, that's a win. If it looks like my life is going to end and ministry is hard, that's a win. Win-win. Can't defeat. To live as Christ, to die as gain. So now he's going to give them an exhortation, verse 27. Look at this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. I'm going to pause right there for just a moment. The bulk of our sermon is going to be that, what he wants to hear about them. But look at this, verse, chapter 27, or verse 27, very first word, only. Only. You are to be single-hearted on this mission. This is why God left you on earth. And the moment you trusted in Christ, you didn't immediately get beamed into heaven because you were meant to do this thing. Other things perhaps as well, but singleness of heart. You are to do this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You're meant to stay as a testimony consistent with the gospel you believe. The your there is plural in Greek. It's y'all. You cannot read this individualistically. Only let y'all's manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's speaking about the church. You cannot obey this command by yourself. You cannot obey living a manner worthy of the gospel without a church. Only yet y'all's manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, is super interesting. Because it's a passive, let this happen to you, plural, y'all, imperative. It's a command. Command, you must do this. If you're going to be a Christian, you must be singleness of heart towards pursuing this manner of life that you can't do yourself. Let God do this through you. That's the idea. Allow yourself to be built in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's, that's the idea. Allow, you're not doing this yourself as if you could get credit, but God is wanting to do in you and in this church to build a church, build a community, build lives that are consistent with the gospel. That's what the worthy of the gospel means there. Not that there's some sort of line, and if you fall below it, God's really mad and pointing his finger at you, but it's consistency, worthiness. That your community, your manner of life as a church is consistent with the truths of the gospel. And then he says, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. This is the idea here of like by reputation. That if I were to come and just witness how you do church, it would be obvious that you believe the gospel. Or if I just hear through you, the rumors about you, 
those people believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So by reputation or by visibleness, right? I may see, I may I be able to see or I might just be able to hear the rumors about you that you live in such a way that's consistent with the gospel of Christ. And look at the end of verse 28. He capstones this kind of phrase here with, and that from God, meaning this is something that God is going to do. So here's the idea, the, that y'all's life together be suitably built by, of, from, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel provides the blueprints and the substance, the foundation that you build on. God will do the building. You're the stones he's going to build with. So what's going to be the reputation of South Canyon Baptist Church? What is God building here? That's the question I want us to ask today. Looking primarily at verses, the rest of verse 27 and 28, I want to lay out what I think is, a, is an easy way to understand what he's saying in these, these few phrases. And here's how I want to approach this. How God builds a gospel-worthy church. So this command to do this, he's then going to lay out what that looks like. How does God build a gospel-worthy church, a church that's built, displaying by reputation, by, by, by observation, you see the gospel, you hear the gospel, by just the way these people live their lives together. Paul asks them, he wants them to see, he wants to see three things from them that will result in a fourth thing. I've got it kind of written out like an equation there, all right? These kind of go in order. They build upon each other, but all of them are essential for a gospel-worthy church, all right? So we're going to do sort of a math equation here. Looking at verse 27, right in the middle, it says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. I think what he's referring to here is gospel doctrine, standing firm in the truth that comes by the spirit of truth. This shared spirit and standing. When you hear of this idea of standing firm in the New Testament, it has the idea of standing firm in the truth, the truths of the gospel. That you stand together as one in the truths of the gospel, in one spirit, the spirit of truth. The spirit leads and reveals all truth. You need to stand firm in what you know and believe by the word, by the work and the power of the spirit. So that is where the foundation is set in a church that is built by God that is gospel-worthy. When you think of gospel doctrine, you're talking about the truths, the truths of the gospel. And we've, you've probably heard it here many times, but a good way to summarize that is God, man, Christ response. God. There's truths about God that we have to affirm if this is going to be a gospel-worthy truth, uh, church. One is that God is the creator of all things and the king of all things. He is just and righteous and good in every single way. He's glorious, and we're accountable to him. He owns everything. He's the standard for everything. His opinion matters more than anything else. Man, man is made in his image to represent him, to worship him, to love him, to know him. But every single one of us is corrupted by sin. We've all fallen, and now we're on the, uh, we have God against us. His goodness is now against us. His justice is now against us in our sin because we have turned from him. We have no longer wanted to recognize him as the owner and king of all things. We have wanted to make ourselves the way we want. We want to be king of our own lives, and we don't want God telling us what to do. And so we've rebelled against him, and now we're under his justice and his eternal wrath. But Christ, Christ, the God-man, God himself, even while we were still sinners, sent Christ, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, who came and lived a perfect life, 
died on the cross to appease God's wrath against sin and to purchase our salvation, our forgiveness, our reconciliation. And when he rose again from the dead, the problem was solved. A sinful humanity and a holy God can now be reconciled through the God-man Jesus Christ. Jesus himself becomes the doorway by being both God and man. He could fulfill both sides of the equation. And all those response, all those who repent of their sins, leave the straw house they're living in and flee to the brick house that Christ has built, can be saved. And we follow him and we trust in him. And we rest not in our works, but in his. God, man, Christ responds. Those are the doctrines, and then all the things that flow out of them is what God uses to build his church. It's a message. Faith comes by hearing these truths and hearing by the word of Christ. So first and foremost, God builds a gospel-worthy church on gospel doctrine, the truths of the gospel. God, man, Christ responds. We are, to sh- we are to stand firmly as one in that spirit of truth. Number two, look at the next phrase in verse 27, that Paul wants to hear about them. I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, but I also want to hear that you are with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, which I think is gospel culture. Gospel culture, the way you relate to one another, the truths you believe produce a certain response to one another that creates a culture. What's it like to just watch these people in the lobby at donut time as they interact in their small groups? Is there a shared mind in striving? This shared mind, this idea of thinking about each other and thinking about what builds one another up. Not just, I've got to get this off my chest and I'm just going to vomit it on you. And now I feel better, but now you feel terrible. No, that idea of consider one another. I am coming to church with the mindset of not to be served, but to serve. One shared mind in striving side by side. Not head-to-head, not hand-to-hand combat, which we see so much in churches. And in some ways, we're seeing that in our own denomination of churches, where there are people under the guise of standing for the truth are tearing one another apart. And don't say you have gospel doctrine if then you're tearing apart another Christian. You have to have this as well. There are some who want to weaponize the truth, not to build unity among believers, but to shove one another out of the boat, to push one another out of the house, to banish people from the church. And I would encourage you to give no place for that in your own hearts or your own minds. We are called, if we're gospel people, to strive side by side, which means we help each other. And the idea of striving is the idea that it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to stay unified as a church. It'd be way easier if every one of us had the same background, had the same Christian story, we're in the same life stage, but we're not. We're in a different place. We run the equations a little bit differently. So there's a need for grace and striving. Gospel unity is something God does in us, but it's also something that we have to work and make effort and labor for. May South Canyon never have its own kind of Christian version of cancel culture. You said the wrong thing, and you're out. Well, no, let me reason with you. I'm not going to give up on you. Titus 3, 9 through 11 says this. This is very strong here. He says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, 
and quarrels about the law. Now, the law is a big deal. That's in the Bible. Don't quarrel about that. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Look at verse 10. But as for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Paul's like, you work very hard to hold fast to sound doctrine and maintain a spirit of unity among one another. Among one another. So gospel doctrine plus gospel culture plus, look at this, verse 28, verse very at, the begin, at the very beginning of the verse, verse 28, gospel confidence, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Look at this. So you're going to have some opposition. The big bad wolves are going to come. Storms are going to come. We do live in a world where the sin, our flesh, the devil, the world, wants to silence Christianity, wants to devour it wants to intimidate. And the gospel means that we don't flinch. So whenever there's a threat, there's kind of three responses, right? Fight, flight, or freeze, right? Have you heard this? Fight, flight, or freeze. Paul says you don't do any of those. You have such confidence. Only let your life be in a manner worthy of the gospel that you're so confident in the God of the universe and his sovereignty over all things and the fact that he has made promises and you've got a whole Bible full of how he has kept those promises. He's done it more slowly than humanity has liked, but he has never yet failed to keep a promise. Therefore, we do not have to fear anything in our opponents. That's what Paul's saying. From prison. All right, this is not Paul kind of sitting down, you know, sipping a latte, having a nice little break. He's in prison. And not nice prison, first century Roman prison, saying don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't flinch. Because you have enemies that are going to want to move you off gospel doctrine to be a little bit more, a little more easier for the culture to take in, right? Don't move from your doctrine. And don't move from your culture. Do not give up on each other. You live in a culture that is, if they can't get you to get off your theology, they're going to cause you to be so frightened about it, so threatened by it, that you begin to tear each other apart, right? And it's going to take the Spirit of God to do this. Don't flinch. No surprises, no outrage, no retaliation, no fighting fire with fire. And Jesus gives us such a great model for this, right? He goes and he pleads with the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what's coming. He knows his opponents are coming. And then when they come to arrest him, what does Peter do? Fight. It's a threat. He's fighter of the fight, flight, freeze. He's the fight. Swing the sword. And she's like, nope. Let me go ahead and fix all the things you broke swinging the sword. Appreciate the zeal, Peter. But it's breaking stuff, right? This is not how we're going about this. Then what happens is Peter's so freaked out, he flees, right, at the threat. And he freezes. Paul, Peter kind of does all three, right? Then he's asked, you're one of his disciples, right? Uh, n- n- no, right? But look, see what Jesus does, right? He doesn't fight. He doesn't run. He doesn't freeze. And Jesus is our model. In fact, that's what chapter 2 is all about. So if you think I'm making this up, that's exactly where Paul's going to go in the next message, is that the mind and spirit that you have is to have the one Christ had, which he comes and he never 
though he's challenged on who he is on doctrine, he never flinches. And though people try to divide him and get him, you know, all these different things, he never, he never turns on his disciples, no matter how much knuckleheads they are, right? He hangs on to them. He strives with them. He cares for them. And then he has the confidence. Roman, or Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So this gospel confidence that comes from Christ himself. If the gospel is true and real, then there really isn't that many things to fear. If God is for me, who can be against me, right? Romans 8 tells us this. Listen to this. This same idea of one mind, one spirit, and the confidence that comes from that when your opponents are coming at you. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8 to the Romans about all of these opponents that come. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation, none of those opponents will win. You have no reason to flinch or be frightened. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let the wolf blow all he wants. He will not blow this house down. So I just love that verse at the beginning of verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. The Greek word for anything there means anything. Yeah, but, 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 but. Nope, nope, nope. Not if he's God. Not if the resurrection's true. Not if the scriptures are true. That's not a call for us to freeze. But we're purposeful. We're purposeful. We know who we are as gospel people. And we have a community that's not going to be easily broken by our opponents. We're not going to take the bait and turn on each other. We're just not going to. And we're not going to flinch. We're not going to overreact. We're not going to respond out of fear. And look at, ver- look at the next verse. Here's what he says. If you do this, if you, if, if you have a church that stands firm, a shared spirit in standing with gospel doctrine, a shared mind and striving side by side with gospel culture, and a shared fearlessness in adversity or gospel confidence, if you have those three put together by God built into a church, here's what you have, verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation. Do you see what's at stake? If this church is being built by God on the truths, on the unity, on the confidence that comes from the gospel, your opponents will assail you and it will become very clear that this is an unassailable church. And it'll be clear to them to go, they have something stronger than I have. I can't freak them out. I can't get under their skin. I can't get them to change their minds about Jesus. And I can't get them to turn on each other. They win. Not by the sword and by power, but by the gospel. That's an unassailable church. This is totally opposite than everything else that you'll see in our culture, right? The culture wants us to, is going to attack us in one of these three ways. Either intimidation, change your message, turn on each other. And so many of us are buying it. Verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from what? God. 
God does this. Which means your confidence isn't in the church that you built. It's in the church that God built. And you are secure in that church. This is the reputation Paul wants this Philippian church to have. And I think this is the reputation God wants this church to have in this community. A clear sign. Look at what he says. This is a clear sign. It's not ambiguous. It's not fuzzy. It's not hard to read from a distance. You don't need to put your glasses on to see it. It's something that you can't explain away. It's not something that you can ignore or dismiss. It's not confusing. It's, not, it's a double-sided sign. For those of us that are headed in the right direction, it's confirmation that we are saved. And for those that are going against this sign, it's a warning that destruction is ahead. You are called to be that sign together. A sign of salvation for those who trust in Christ. A sign of warning for those that want to tear apart the gospel. Inside of Christ is life and salvation and confidence. Outside of Christ is death and damnation and terror. That's the sign that will be put up in the church that God builds. So the question is, what is God building here? Is the sign clear and visible? Is it clear to Rapid City? These people believe the truth, and they love one another in the truth, and they're not letting outside messages or outside threats shake them. I can't explain them. They seem to be rooted in a kingdom that is not of this world. They seem to believe in a God that's bigger than the news cycle. They don't seem to be influenced by social media outrage. They just, what do you do with these people? What do you do with Paul? You can't kill him. He thinks that's a win. You let him go, he's going to evangelize people. You punish him, he praises Jesus and wins your guards. You give him, he's indestructible. You can't beat him. And we're to be a church that's the same. Look at verses 29 and 30. We're almost done. For it has been granted. Here's the because. For it has been granted. The word there is gift. Spiritual gift, actually. Same word as spiritual gift. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, this is something bigger than you and your comfort. This is something bigger than you and your glory and your reputation. This is for the sake of Christ. For it has been granted, spiritually gifted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Well, that's a hard pill to swallow. Salvation, we like that one. That's a good gift. Thank you, God. And the suffering. They're both gifts. It has been granted to you the high privilege for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Because that's how you know what's real. All three of the pig's houses looked like they were fine until opposition and adversity came. Then you saw what they were made of. You saw what was really there, and that's true in the Christian life. That's true in church life. That was true in Christ's life. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So if we're going to follow Jesus, the salvation that comes from him also comes with suffering as a gift to show it's real. And then verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We're all on the same team here, right? There's not two versions of Christianity. There's just one Christianity, salvation and suffering. And that's how the world's going to know who 
Jesus is. That he's a, he is one who saves through suffering. First and foremost, his own, but then also through us. So, if I were to just summarize that, in the so what, receive your divine gifts, salvation and suffering, with gratitude, and then get after it with me. That's what he's saying. The same struggle that you have, yeah, I have that too. It's called Christianity. It's called salvation. It's called redemption. It's called being ambassadors in enemy country. Expect opposition. And don't flinch. Hold fast to the doctrine. Hold fast to one another in gospel culture, striving side by side. And have confidence because that's the sign. When Jesus says, I will be lifted up and I will draw all men to myself, he's talking about himself on the cross. It's suffering. Suffering's the way. So that's not to diminish anyone's suffering in here. But it is to say that it should not surprise us. So will this church be built of straw? Maybe straw could be, if we were to just pull that analogy out, liberal theology. We're just going to change what we believe to be more palatable to the culture. Straw, it's going to be blown over. won't last. And people will die. The wolf will devour humans. We cannot build, cannot build on false doctrine. But there's also a temptation to build on the sticks of cultural Christianity. A little better, but ultimately it gets blown over as well. It's good doctrine, but it doesn't really have the gospel culture. It's sort of a cultural Christianity. That's being blown away right now by the wolf. And some of us are freaked out because a cultural Christianity was just sticks to begin with without the real heart change of real gospel work. Or will this church be the immovable brick and stone of the gospel of Christ? And when everyone else's houses get blown down, where will they flee? Where will they flee? Where were those churches that have abandoned the gospel and all of a sudden it is shown very quickly that this was a house of straw? Where will those refugees of bad theology flee? I hope it's South Canyon Baptist because it's strong and safe. It doesn't get blown around by the culture. What will those who are refugees of the house made of sticks, a cultural Christianity, or Christianity in name only, where will they flee when that falls apart? May they be able to flee to South Canyon Baptist. Where will the refugees of the LGBT movement flee? Can they flee to the house built here? There's a temptation to just criticize the way everyone else has built their house, right? To be the ones to go, I'm going to tear down your straw house, and I'm going to tear down your stick house to just show how much better my house is than yours. You don't have to do that. Satan's plenty good at doing that. Focus on being the kind of place with the door open to the refugees of those who have a false Christianity that they can flee here and find the real thing and find real safety, real community. And as they figure out what they believe and how to be a part of this community, it's a, it's a safe, confident place for the refugees of the world to come in. It's not our job to lock the door and not let them come in. You screwed up, and now you've got to deal with the consequences. No, there's grace and forgiveness because we screwed up too. Our lives were built of straw until Christ came and rescued us. And now we want to rescue him, you as well. Make sure that this is a sure and steady and hospitable and refreshing and restoring refuge for the refugees of the culture war, the refugees of, of, of churches made of straw and sticks, 
the refugees of the different things that are going on in our culture. May this be a place of safety and refuge and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of church God's builds. You are the bricks he's going to use to do it. Are you of the kind of quality, worthiness, by which this structure will stand for generations? Holding out the word of life. Bringing people into a place where grace and forgiveness and teaching and discipleship can happen and you're not going to flinch because you have a big king who is working out this big cosmic plan. And to my non-Christian friends, would encourage you to think about what your life is built on. Will it last? Is it easy blown over? And I would encourage you that if it's not built on Christ solely to turn and run, before the wolf comes, before death comes, before judgment comes. Flee to the house that God builds, the church that God builds, the message that God has given to us through Christ. Repent of your sin, leave your house, and move into his house. It is safe. Let's pray. God, thank you that in you and you alone we find refuge. God, thank you for this call. What an... In, encouraging call from Paul in so few words. It took me a lot more words than him to say it. What an awesome call, God. I pray that you would help us to not be pushed off of what we know to be true from your word. May this always be a church. May we always be individuals who are rock solid in our understanding of the truth. God, I pray also that built on that truth would also be a gospel culture where we strive side by side, that we are so slow to turn on each other, not in some sort of squishy unity, but in a real unity that also takes seriously that not everybody thinks like we do. And so, God, I pray that you'd give us a good gospel doctrine and a good gospel culture and an understanding of how to live together in the truth, not as a compromise to the truth. And we need your spirit to help us. We don't do that very well. And God, I pray for a gospel confidence that as we face enemies that try to intimidate us, that we would not flinch that we would not be knocked off, that we would not retaliate in a way that is uh, unbecoming of Christ. And God, we pray that that kind of culture, that kind of confidence, that kind of doctrine would be a clear, clear, undeniable sign to this community that they just can't miss of what life and death, the differences are, what an eternity with God is like versus an eternity separated from God is. And I pray for my friends here that maybe are just coming to the realization that I have been building with straw and sticks. Lord, I pray that they would come and draw into the house that stands for eternity. You promise that the gates of hell will not overcome your church that's built on the rock of the confession that you are the Christ. So God, help us to build our lives there. And I pray that this church would be built there too. Build it up in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.